This is the Journey 66 Book Writing Podcast. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are your road trip advisors. You may be at mile marker one and just thinking about an idea for a book, or maybe you've gone off-road in your writing and you want to restart the journey. Join Dave and me as we help you buckle up and write. On the Journey 66 book writing podcast, Dave and I like to introduce you to a variety of authors whose interests are as diverse as the way they package them. Today, we are talking with Christina Quist, first-time author of a collection of autobiographical short stories called Kaleidoscope, absurdly short stories of traveling and unraveling. The unraveling began when Christina and her family moved from the United States to South Africa. There, she realized she was a million miles away from her coupon-clipping, carpool-driving lifestyle. In her collection, she shares what it looked like to have her comfortable American lifestyle disrupted and how she found freedom in a post-apartheid community. Today, Christine is going to talk about her journey to writing her first book, how she started, what she learned, and what she would do differently next time. And she'll also talk a bit about the writing process, what she loves about it, and also what she hates about it. So welcome, Christina. So glad to have you. It's such a great pleasure to have a first-time author with us on the podcast today. Thank, Thank you for you. having me. It's a great honor. Yeah. So we're going to start off this episode as we do all the episodes before we launch into our conversation with you and share an area where we have made progress this week. So Dave, how about you go first and I'll go second and Christina, you can go third. Generally, I don't talk about writing because I am not in the middle of a big writing project, although I did start a project. So I've been thinking about a book idea for quite some time. And those of you who have started books, you know how long it takes just to even start writing. And as soon as you start writing, you don't even know what you're writing about. And for me, I always start with writing good stories. So I've got a really great story. And I think, so So what does this story actually illustrate? And, and, and how am I going to think about this book? But anyway, I made great progress this last week. And I laid down probably a thousand to fifteen hundred words, and I'm like, oh, the more I wrote, the more I realized, oh, I think I understand what this book is actually about now. And so that was great. And you actually read a few of those, so yeah, it was great, Dave. I love reading your writing. You never share your writing enough with me. I'm always happy to see what's going on in your thought process. But you you point to something so applicable as you don't know exactly what you're going to write about until you start writing, and then things start to crystallize. I don't think you ever get over that. I think no matter how long you've been writing and that's the journey. So you have to either get used to it or, or stop doing it. Cause it, I don't think it gets easier. It's just the nature of the work. So how about you? Any progress this last week? Well, mine has to do with writing. I don't talk a lot about my writing on the podcast, but I do have this kind of side gig where I don't get paid much money, but I write articles for an online shelter magazine called lived in style and I was assigned an article a few weeks ago, and I actually got it done before it was due, which is, uh, I always get things done before they're due, but I got it done well before it was due. Usually I'm doing it the night before, you know, I, I, I procrastinate, 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 and then it's like I'm rushing through to get it done. But this time I was able to take my time, and I think the end product was a little bit better. So that's progress, not procrastinating. I am the quintessential procrastinator. <laughs> <laughs> Is that part of your Enneagram 4 profile? I don't know. It might be. It might be. All I know is that 
it definitely is chronic in my life. I remember, you know, writing papers at the last minute in college and graduate school and thinking, why did I wait so long? I still have those nightmares. Like I have to get books from interlibrary loan and I haven't started a 20 page paper. And I know it's because I procrastinated <laughs> in college as well. Well, I, I'm so, an eight on the, on the Enneagram and I procrastinate just as much. So I don't think it's an Enneagram. Can't blame the Enneagram on that. I think it's just writing. It's difficult, mm -hmm. right? And so you always think it's going to be easier a few hours later and it never is. So no. All right, Christina, where did you make progress this week? Well, do you know what? Mine has nothing to do with writing, but it has to do with my face since it, it was swollen and my eyes were swollen shut and my lips were like twice the size that they normally are. Like I had an overzealous Botox injection or something. <laughs> <laughs> I've been covered with this very weird rash and like it came out of nowhere. I was doing nothing differently, nothing at all. And come to find out on our um, um, suburb Facebook group, several 10 or 20 other people have the same weird rash that happened. And we can only trace it back to what happened during the Texas storms when, the, um, when everything shut down and perhaps the water supply was affected. We had a boil alert. And so that's the only thing we can trace it back to is maybe it was that. So my progress is that I can open my eyes now and I can actually move my mouth for this podcast. And so wow. my, my words sound like words now. <laughs> that's crazy. I mean, did you feel any of the results of like Botox? Did your, did things smooth out? Like, <laughs> not even that. Like, <laughs> I mean, my, my lips looked great, but not being able to talk was also a negative. So Right, right. Well, you look beautiful and you look totally normal. I can attest to that to our listening audience. So I'm just glad you're feeling better. That must have been so strange and scary. This is very weird. Very weird. So Christina, we just want to start off this conversation by hearing a little bit about your book. We introduced it a bit in the opening, but can you Tell us a little bit more about it and what led you to write it. I've always wanted to, to write. And so I always kept journaling or I always do blogs or little snippets and stories of things that I want to remember. And I think I'm a little bit of a sentimentalist and I think I want to have these little remembrances or memorials of, of my life and my memories with people and experiences. So um, the story is about absurdly short stories of traveling and unraveling. So it's really a compilation of the time that our family moved from the United States to South Africa, and then what happened when we got to South Africa and the continuing saga of learning and really self-awareness and all the things that happen when you leave your comfort zone. So I really wanted my kids to have something to look back on. So when they try to figure out why did my parents move from Ohio to South Africa, they can actually have some semblance of reason behind it, <laughs> you know, because when you're a, when you're a kid, you don't have the sense of reasoning as an adult, it seems an adult does, but when they might read this as an adult, I hope they have some sense of, oh, maybe that's why, and maybe they'll have some, you know, a sense of forgiveness or, <laughs> or understanding for us, you know. Hopefully the forgiveness. <laughs> Right, right. That's a great you, phrase. When the therapy comes into play there. Right, right. When did you start thinking that your words would have more appeal than just for your children? And you thought, I should really start collecting these stories and thinking about how to package them in a book. When did that happen? 
I've always enjoyed writing and I've always written for like a, a newspaper as a journalist briefly, like little snippets for magazines or like freelance jobs. And I've realized that, that, that I can connect with people and people can connect with what I'm saying because of just the humanity and the universal truth of this is what I'm conveying. So I think it's really been, I, I think I've known for a, a little while that people like to read what I've written because I think I write what people feel and I find the words for what, for what others want to say, but can't necessarily put it into words. You talk about all these different stories. How did you start to connect them into a book that hung together? Mm -hmm. And what was the larger message? Can you talk about that a little bit? It was a mess to begin with. It was like, you know, scraps of paper and notebooks full of, you know, stories that didn't make any sense. But I actually started putting them together chronologically. So, you know, on a timeline of sorts from this is the mentality that I had to what it took to leave America, what, where I was mentally, spiritually, emotionally, and what, trans, what translated to taking the next step to this is us getting on the plane, this is us landing in a foreign country, trying to drive on the left side of the road and buy things in a different currency. So it's, it's kind of those, along those lines, but then also there's the whole greater context of what if there's something out there that, that you need to experience, but we're afraid to just take that step and do, this is what it looks like. It looks like a roller coaster of things and a roller coaster of emotions and it's okay and it's normal because, you know, sometimes there's like this excitement, like, woohoo, we landed in Cape Town and it's beautiful and we love it. And wow, you know, this is exciting. And then, you know, three months later, we're so lonely. No one remembers us. And I think you've all forgotten us. And what have we done? We've made the worst mistake ever and type of thing. And then I think that's normal. And I think we need to acknowledge like that's humanity. That's who we all are, no matter what we're doing, no matter what risks we're taking, we are going to have those ups and downs. And so I kind of tried to package it like, this is the cycle of life type of thing. This is what we all experience, no matter what we're doing. It's not just about, you know, traveling to a foreign country. It's about traveling to a, to a universe outside of our own. And this is what it looks like inside. One of the things that's so interesting is that if you were only posting on Facebook, you would only show yourself at the white beaches on you know on the ocean and how wonderful it is right mm -hmm. and and oh look at us so nobody knows the underlying story the anxiety the fear the wondering if you can stay and all these things that happen when you when you move away like that into a completely different context I know you had mentioned uh, before we started today about some of the stories that you told in the book could you talk a little bit about maybe one of those stories so one of the things that we had to get used to, which is totally normal in the area that we were in, which was totally abnormal for the area that we came from, was the fact that baboons run amok in the town. I mean, the town is big. It's like know, 100,000 people and it's a suburb of Cape Town. So it's big. And so they come down out of the mountains in these troops. So it's very rarely one, but there's an alpha male usually. And so they can get into your house. They're very smart, very intelligent. And there's baboon guards who will guard the houses for you. And they kind of patrol the area and they use paintball guns and loud noises to keep the baboons away. And so that was one of the things we had to get 
used to was, you know, you have your fire department number and, you know, some emergency numbers in case, and then you have your baboon guard number. One day my husband and I were out and so the kids were at home and the house has like an eight to 10 foot cement wall guarding it around the outside perimeter. And it had like some open doors on the porch. And it was summertime and it was hot and there's of course no air conditioning. So the doors were open. And somehow this 150 pound baboon jumped over that fence and walked into the house. Now, no one seemed to notice this baboon in the house and it apparently opened the refrigerator and was just going through the sorted condiments or something. I don't know. And my daughter, who was 15 at the time, <laughs> said she walked out of her room and saw that something furry was sticking out of the refrigerator and she thought it was the cat and she looked and it was not the cat and she screamed and ran back to her bedroom, but she left her twin brothers in the living room alone. <laughs> one was up reading a book and one was on his computer, Xbox, whatever it was at the time, I don't remember, gaming system it was. And they were completely oblivious to it. So this baboon helps himself to the groceries, the peanut butter, the avocados, some laundry soap, meanders around and goes and sits next to my son, Hudson, on the couch, who was sitting there playing his little game on the console. And then <laughs> the next thing he knows, the two of them kind of look at each other and make eye contact. <laughs> and he said he just freezes like, oh, what? <laughs> and then, so everybody kind of slowly moves away from the baboon. <laughs> And the baboon just graciously picks up a bag of apples, waltzes himself out the door and sits on the porch and eats the apples. Meanwhile, the kids are like frantically closing all the doors and locking all the windows. <laughs> and they took a video of the whole thing. But if we were to tell that story to someone in South Africa, they'd be like, yeah, you gotta watch yourself. <laughs> you yeah. know? Friends in America, they're like, oh, what? <laughs> So tell me, Christina, what point did that illustrate in your in your book? What were you hoping? What was the bigger principle you were trying to illustrate with that story? Yeah, I just I thought it was so funny. Like this, this for us was our first experience of what is a normal thing for other people. You know, it was kind of an indoctrination or um, uh, yeah, just that that pathway, the initiation into a culture that this is expected of course there's going to be a baboon encounter <laughs> this is our country this is what we this is what happens it was just kind of this knowing that oh this is this is not a big deal i should i should not act like a crazed woman like there was a baboon in the house i'm this is this is just what happens here i am no longer in a suburb of ohio i am i'm here in the tip of africa and this is what happens so just get myself together and stop acting like a maniac so many ways, your book is a would fit the category of a memoir, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, through the eyes of the stories that you tell, or through your eyes, but through the stories that you tell. And you mentioned earlier about just that difficulty of of stitching them all together under a common theme. At what point did you get stuck? Maybe in the middle of the journey, what what was that like, and how did you get unstuck in the writing process? it took quite a quite a while of just piecing stories together really wrestling with what was 
what I thought was rubbish and what would be interesting to somebody else, you know, what was universal in truth and what was just a, a special to me only type of story. And I think it really helped when I put a bunch of stories together and I handed a notebook to my friend and I said, would you read these for me and tell me what you think? And I knew that she liked my writing because of course you only take your stuff to people that you know like your writing. You know? Exactly. <laughs> the first time through, right? You got to get a little exactly. positive. Right, right. <laughs> and then she, she read them through quickly and she handed me the notebook and she said, okay, um, these are great, but um, it's not enough you need to put some more meat on the bones and make these actually story stories. And so I thought, oh no, like this is way more work than I thought it was gonna be. It's not nearly as easy. And so then I had to go back and actually relive each story from each perspective of each character in the story with you know, dialogue, remembering who said what and what was the texture, what was the color, what was the smell of that story? What was, what was there to bring it to life? So I kind of had to relive everything there and put more meat on the bones. So it actually brought the reader into the context of the story and the wider range of what was going on. Was putting meat on the bones also kind of inserting your, your commentary and your thought process to help guide the reader along into these insights? And how did you do that? Because I think authors often who are writing for the first time a book, especially a more memoir focused one, they just do the story and there's not a lot of that thinking layered in with it. Um, my mistake was I would assume that people knew where, knew what I was thinking and I assumed that they were following my my thought pattern. And so, you know, my friend would say, what do you mean by this? Can you, I didn't, I didn't follow this segue, bring me here. And so then I would go back and think, okay, wait a minute. So I, I need to actually make a trail of my thoughts and lead people to how I got here instead of assuming that you're following this with me because I I was making an assumption that, that people were there with me, but then I have to remember that actually people aren't there with me. So you go back to the very beginning and then you think people aren't standing here with me. I need to show them and in vivid detail, this is this is what they're seeing as, as if they are standing there with me, but but they actually never were. You mentioned showing them in detail, and that's a really, really important piece of storytelling is showing, not telling. Like describing that scene with the baboon on the couch, basically watching your, your son play video games. And that scene has a lot of detail in it. And, and being able to evoke the emotion and the, and the actual imagery of that scene is really, really important, as opposed to just saying, well, and the baboon was on the couch with my, my son. As you continued to work on these revisions, how long would you say the process took you from the time you started thinking about the book to the time you put a period to the end and you said, you know what, I'm done, I'm done with it? Gosh, I think I probably started or even early just doing blogs and um, collecting stories as early as 2012. Not necessarily with the intention of putting it in a book, but just with documenting things. It was probably about 20, 2017, I think, when I legitimately started thinking, I'm going to put this into a book. It was 20, 2019 when I thought I cannot edit a single sentence anymore. I don't want to see this. I hate this book. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> when did you know, though, that you could 
with confidence release it. Like we talk, talk people, when you're changing words here and there, that's usually a good indicator that it's time to move it along. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're not making su- substantial changes anymore, then it, it's, you can, because you can nitpick, you know, word choice until, you know, you're dead, right? So I'm wondering what that moment was for you. You know, I just felt it. I felt like, okay, I had, I had a book cover. I had, I had everything ready. And I, I just felt like it's done. And like you said, I, I mean, I, I still could go back and, and rewrite and pick word choices out. And I think, oh, I, I don't like that word choice or, you know, I, I don't like that sentence pattern or something. But I just, I, I just kind of intuitively felt like, like a sigh of relief. Like I just, I just knew. So you self-publish, right? And so we often warn people who are self-publishing to really pay attention to the cover and to the layout of the book if you're going to self-publish, because if it smells like a self-published book, then you know it is a self-published book and it instantly loses credibility. And so one way that you can really establish credibility is by that cover. Can you talk a little bit about your cover, which is really incredible. People go and take a look at it. Yeah, I love my cover. I love my cover so much that I had it printed as a poster that I hang in my wall. The artist that I chose to have designed is a friend of mine that lived in South Africa with me. And so she knew the culture, she knew the, the climate, she knew this, like the everything about it. So she really captured all of that in the cover for me. And she she did it in the style and the imagery that I wanted is all illustration and it was vivid colors and we worked long and hard on it just to get it just right, you know, down to the font, down to um, the slant of the words, down to everything. Because I just knew if I pick up a, a book, I'm definitely judging a book by its cover. And so I, I just knew, like, I, I wanted something to be proud of. And I really invested in um, her as an artist. And I wanted to honor her work. I wanted to honor the work that was inside the book by putting a really great cover on it. So that was one big investment I made was in the cover of the book. Right. And you say the word investment, which it is when you go the self-publishing route, you do have to invest some money to get it to print. Can you talk a little bit about that? And was that scary to invest some money to get it to print? Or how did you manage that emotionally and even financially? That was a that was a trial and error process that, that I didn't see coming. And I, I really wish I'd have done more research on the self-publishing aspect. I mean, I saved up some money because I knew from a friend of mine, like ballpark, what it was going to cost me. So I had saved up some funds and I knew how much the cover was going to cost. But other than that, it was kind of like, um, okay, I did little by little, you know, and just did what I could. I, Looking back now, I did a lot of things I, I wish I hadn't done and would definitely redo and not do again. Such as, can you tell our listeners a couple of those things? Yes, yes. So once you publish a book, that is the beginning of the journey as well. <laughs> it's not, it's not uh, the end of you writing a book. It's the beginning of people having an invitation to read your book. And so for me, I just thought, okay, phew, it's published, it's done. It's going to get out there. I don't know how I thought it was going to get out there. You know, once it moves out of your friend circle, it, it, it needs an extra boost to get out there, you know, past that warm circle of friends who buy it out of obligation. And so I, you know what, I didn't do any research on marketing or how to market myself or branding or anything like that. I, I'm terrible on social media and I just really wanted to avoid that at all costs. And so 
Yeah, looking back now, I think I really should have looked at the long game of of self-publishing, not just as an aspect of putting thought to paper is self-publishing, but really what is the long what is the long game of self-publishing as 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 it pertains to self-promoting and marketing and making your book visible. You know, and that same principle applies to authors who go with traditional publishers. You have to take so much ownership of that promotion. So, and I don't think you fully realize the gravity of that until you publish your first book. I know Dave, you can speak to that and you have spoken to that, but it's a huge responsibility that now more than ever is befalling on the author. You know, it's their responsibility as much as publicist at a traditional publishing house's responsibility. I think you're, you're, you're saying what so many other first-time authors experience. Well, we were talking this morning, we were on a webinar, Melissa and I, with an author that we've worked with, and he, um, we were interviewing him for an academic community, um, I believe out of Europe, PhD students mostly that want to do more popular writing. And uh, this author, Dr. Omling, he talked about the importance of you're starting a journey that you don't know anything about if you're writing for the first time. So you should expect the long game basically is what he said, what you are talking about. And yet we don't, we kind of, all of us start things and, and then are surprised sometimes by how hard it is. But I think if you're a writer, Melissa and I always say this, if you're a writer and you have a long game in, in mind and that, that book, that's just the first of, of many. It might not be just books that you write, but blogs, but it's, it's not just thinking about the book itself, but a, really a lifetime of writing. In previous conversations with you, Christina, you had this quote. You said um, you, you could understand what George Bernard Shaw says when he says he liked the idea of having written, but like you like the idea, of, you like the flash of an idea and the creative spark, but you and you love the finished product, but you don't like the in-between so much. Can you talk a little bit about that? It's, it sounds like you're speaking to the writing process that's just so onerous that Dave and I were talking about earlier. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that George Bernard Shaw quote just got me through the whole process. Just to think like, I liked, I just kept telling myself, I like to have written, you know, just to get to the end product. Because sometimes, you know, when you have this creative idea and I start writing and I think, oh, this is where I'm going to go with this. It's going to be great. People are going to love it. You know, I'm going to be famous for this one. I mean, not really that, but you know what I mean? Like, you're just like, wow, that's just amazing. And then you write it and you're like, oh, wow, that's just rubbish. That's just garbage. This is awful. Why am I even writing? This is like third grade work, you know, not no offense to third graders, but, and then you kind of like, look at it again and you, you retry, you know, and then you're like, okay, this, okay, this is getting better. And then you try, you try again and you think, oh, this is not too terrible. And you kind of get to the end or you think, okay, you know what, this is looking good. Okay. This is better. Okay. You know, all right. I'm happy with this, but it's just, again, like this roller coaster of emotions where <laughs> you see something in possibility and it's, the bridge that you have to walk from where it begins to where it finishes. It's not a straight bridge and it's not just the writing of the words. It's the delving into the soul of who you are and bringing all of that stuff up and out and trying to incorporate that into a piece that you're going to birth into the world and present to them as part of yourself. And it's that whole, that whole idea that's both terrifying and exciting. I know that when we've talked before, you have talked about how, 
you write one sentence and you don't necessarily know what the next sentence or the next thought is going to be. But until you write that first sentence, you can't really fully think. I mean, it, so it goes back to this notion that writing is thinking. Can you discuss that more profoundly than I just stated it? Because you, you've said it to me before in such an eloquent manner. You know, it's so hard to know what you're going to write until you actually start writing and you start putting movement to the words because you don't know what's beyond the next sentence and you don't know what's beyond the next page. You don't know in your mind what's coming and you don't know what's going to unfold until you actually start opening those doors and, and walking through them as I'm mixing metaphors all over the place. But you just don't know until you actually start putting the words down on paper and then the next page comes and then the next page. And you're just surprised by what your, what your subconscious is bringing out and what your mind is telling you. And until you actually open that box, you don't know what's going to come out. I've been practicing um, The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron, and she talks about um, doing morning pages which is every morning, just first thing in the morning, before you even have coffee, before you look at your phone or anything, grab your notebook, grab your pen and just start writing. It can be complete garbage, it can be complete nonsense, but just start writing. It's because while you're, you know, your brain has been sleeping, your subconscious has been working, things have been floating to the surface. And before your analytical mind starts to dissect and edit things out of out of the out of the way your brains starts to just to remember those things that you were dreaming about or perhaps maybe you're in your imagination and so you just kind of dump them out onto these pages it might be nonsense but it also could be some great idea that you give birth to later on during the day but what you're doing is just clearing all of that out so your creativity has room to breathe and you have you have an idea of what what is beyond your imagination what is beyond what you think is there, you know, so often we start our day with, this is what I have to get done. But in reality, there's a whole world that's been waiting for us. What, what would happen if we just get that out on paper? And so, so many ideas came to me just from that writing process of that in-between twilight stage of sleeping, waking before the world caves in on us and demands things of us. This is where creativity starts brewing and our imagination is still alive and we actually can can grow something from this. And you just never know. I love that. Can you think of something recent that has burbled to the surface in these morning page sessions? <laughs> it is, so much of it is just b- bizarre things. And so much, so much of it is just writing practice too, like weird things. Like I wrote a whole little play about fruit. Why I was thinking about fruit, I don't know. But it was just character development and dialogue with fruit characters. And it was just, I got lost in this world of fruit characters, you know, for a good hour. But my whole day after that was so fantastic. Like I was so energized from that creative process that I just had so much joy. And I was like, I had six cups of coffee. You know, because so much creativity was flowing. And do I go back to those morning pages, you know, see what I've done? No, I'm not really, not a whole lot. But I think it's just, I think it's the practice of getting that creativity going. You and I discussed this morning page activity before, and I did it this past week. And I woke up and I was just jotting down words. And to me, it was amazing to me, like the 
the free association of words that came to mind and just how they were linked together and the ways they sounded together. And it was, you're right, it was hugely energizing for me as a word person like you. So it's something that I want to do more of. Dave, how about you? Well, after that initial conversation that we had with you, I started to reflect on what I do in the morning. Well, how do I actually behave in the morning? And I realized I get up, I feed the dog, and I sit on the couch and jump on my phone. And since the pandemic, I jump on and see how many coronavirus cases mm -hmm. there are in North Dakota where my parents are, because I've been very worried about them. How many deaths? I mean, that's how I start my day, which is kind of dark. And it's all based on, you know, then I jump on the New York Times, I'll jump on Wall Street Journal, maybe The Economist. And after about 20 minutes, I get up and then I either eat something or take a shower. But I just was thinking, I love this concept of morning pages. So one day this weekend, uh, this last weekend, I didn't do that. And it was tortuous because that's what I wanted, or torturous, because I wanted to do that. I wanted to fumble with my phone. It's so addictive. But I just sat there. I didn't write anything down. But there was a sense of silence. And it I can't really track the emotion that I had, but I knew that after I did it, I wanted more of that. So this whole concept of morning pages, and who is the author who talks about that? Julia Cameron. Julia Cameron. The book is That's, called The Artist's Way. The Artist's Way. That's a great resource. Mm -hmm. So thank you for that. You're welcome. Absolutely. Yeah, I. it's a discipline that I want to embrace more in my life. So thank you for sharing that with us and our audience. You're welcome. So, yeah, it's fabulous. I have learned again so much from you and I'm so grateful that you joined us on this podcast today. I just know there's going to be so much rich um, takeaways for people. So thank you so thank much. You. Thanks for having me. So should we move to our words of the episode? David? Let's move to words right. of the episode. Okay, I'll go first. My word is airsats. And I love this word. I use it frequently because I feel like it has so many applications. And the definition is made or used as a substitute, typically an inferior one for something else. So my husband would call Diet Coke airsats Coke because he would consider it an inferior Coke product, right? Anyway, I, I love that word. And I, because I feel like there's so much, um, there's so much faking in our world, you know, and, and we substitute the real thing for something that's a little less all the time. So AirSats comes up a lot in my life. And I first learned it again from one of my son's favorite authors growing up, Lemony Snicket. Um, so AirSats, he used it in the concept of AirSats elevator. And the, the sentence was, the children discovered that there's an extra elevator, the AirSats fake and consists of nothing but an empty shaft elevator. So what I love about Lemony Snicket is he always gives an explanation of the word in the context of using it to describe something. So anyway, AirSats is my word. Dave, how about you? I was thinking about a fly fishing word, a word that I use when I go fly fishing, and the word is crimp. And it has this idea of, of compressing something into small folds or ridges. It also has another meaning. If you crimp uh, something, you're having a, a limited or, or limiting or adverse effect on something, usually, or someone. Uh, usually it's on something. So we use the word in fly fishing, uh, the phrase is crimp the hook. So if you're fishing in one of the national parks here in 
in North America, like Yellowstone National Park, where I fish often. I fish there usually at least once, sometimes twice a year out in Montana and Wyoming. You have to crimp the barb on your hook because they require barbless hooks. And so you can purchase flies that have, or make flies that have barbless hooks, but generally you're buying barbed hooks, but you crimp them with this little pliers. And you have to remember to do that because if you get stopped by the, the game warden or the, uh, the park ranger, uh, you'll get busted for that. So crimp, it's such a great, I love how tight the word is crimp. It almost, it almost sounds like what you're doing when you crimp the barb on the hook. I used to have crimped hair in the 80s. What about you, Christina? There was an actual tool called a crimper. crimper yeah. It would go down your hair and it would crimp it and create these really strange patterns in your hair. So <laughs> glad to evoke that for you. Yeah, maybe we'll come back. The 80s are on their way back. How about you, Christina? I have the word Ken, K E N. Oh. And it means uh, one's range of knowledge or insight. That's so a great word. Yeah, your whole universal knowledge is your ken. So when Dave talks about fly fishing, I would say, well, that fly fishing vocabulary is not part of my ken. Love it. It's kind of like bailiwick, right? <laughs> Which is like your area of expertise, but yeah. I like that knowledge, your knowledge base, ken. Yeah. I'm totally going to steal that and start using that. I mean, that's what I did. So you can also steal. Have you used it in the past week? Besides I have. The I've been, I've been I'm telling it to everybody because it's such a great little word. <laughs> where, did, where did you learn it? You know what I learned? I learned it on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> How in the world did you learn it on TikTok? <laughs> I, find, I, was, I follow this guy who's like, he loves Wikipedia. And so he's always doing like a vocab word of the day or strange fact or, you know, just random thing. And, so that was, one, that was one of the things he was talking about was, you know, how we should look down on people because how could we possibly know everything? So if somebody doesn't know something that you are referring to, you know, that's fine because it's completely understandable. It's, it's not in their ken. I love that. I need to follow that guy. You'll have to email me whoever yeah, that guy is. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, we know some new words. We know crimping in the fishing sense and ken and... Air sets. There yeah. we go. We're smarter because of being together today. So, all right. So Dave, before we close out this show, can you tell us a little bit about Road Trippers? Road Trippers is our closed Facebook group. But if you jump on Facebook and search for Road Trippers, it's one word, you'll see different options there. But one of them is the Journey 66 Road Trippers group. It's a closed group. Uh, we have a great conversation that happens among different writers who are part of that group. We post also a link to our weekly question and answer group that happens on Tuesday afternoons at 3.30 uh, Central Time. So you can jump on there. It's an hour of great conversation. We often do a writer's workshop this last week. Actually, the last two weeks, Melissa did a session or two sessions on her social media following and how she's done that with her brand called uh, McGillicuddy. So writers who are trying to build a following and, and create uh, really a following for their book once their book is published uh, could learn a lot from that. So we do teaching sessions. We're going to be doing one on storytelling. We've done one on how to add dialogue to your stories. We have just lots of great 
uh, topics to talk about. But the best part of it is the question and answer. So we take your questions and answers, and it often stirs just great conversation among those who are part of that. So to get to that weekly Zoom call, you have to jump on Road Trippers. We'll let you in. Be sure to do that. We'd love to have you and answer all your questions. That's right, because we have all the answers. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, all right. Well, that's a wrap. I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write.